Jesus said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. What does Jesus's mission look like here? What's his mission here? What does Jesus's mission look like here? What does Jesus's mission look like here? What is Jesus's mission here? How do I know what Jesus's mission is? Hey, you know, today we're going to talk a little bit about, actually a lot about, our attitude. And we're going to see an example, I think, in the book of Acts in Paul, that maybe not on the surface, but as you dive into it and kind of understand what's going on, it reveals his, his attitude towards life and towards God. And it reminds me right away uh, out of the gate of the story of a little boy. And by the way, we got uh, kids in here this morning. Uh, holiday weekend, and so a lot of people traveling and give our kids workers a break. So kids, where are you? I see you. Awesome. Hey, you guys pay attention, because at the end, I've got something for you. Sound good? All right. So don't, don't check out on me. But I remember a story about a little boy who uh, was out in his backyard playing baseball. Maybe you've probably heard this story. I've probably even told it before. But he had a baseball bat and his wiffle ball. And he went out there, and uh, he just had a great imagination. And so he's like, seventh game of the World Series, bottom of the ninth, two outs, bases loaded, we're down three runs. And he's got his ball, and he steps up to the plate, and he's just giving all the commentary. And the greatest hitter in the world is up at the plate, and he says his name, and he takes the ball, and he throws it up in the air, and he swings for the fence, and the ball drops to the ground. And so then he hops back right behind where the umpire would be. He's like, strike one! And he hops back up, dusts himself off, steps back in the batter's box. He got him that time. He won't get him again. And he grabs the ball and he, he says again, he's the greatest hitter in the world. He was born for this moment. He takes the ball and he throws it up in the air and he swings as hard as he can for the fence. But another whiff. And the ball hits the ground. And so he jumps back again, strike two. Then he commentator voice comes in. You know, drama's building this is it. This is their only shot. It's a good thing this guy's up to bat and he says his name and he takes the ball and he gets ready. He throws it up and it's almost like slow motion. He takes a swing but the ball falls to the ground again and he looks down and he's a little bit dejected but then he goes, I'm the greatest pitcher in the world. <laughs> it's all about his attitude wasn't it? He went from being the greatest batter to the greatest pitcher in the world if he could strike him out. You know, I mentioned we're going to see in Paul today uh, uh, an attitude, I think, underlying some of his actions. And it, it speaks well to us this weekend, uh, on a Thanksgiving weekend, and our own attitudes. And so with that, let me pray, and then we're going to be in Acts chapter 18. Let's pray. Father, thanks for Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for your grace to us through him. Thanks for the examples of guys like Paul and others throughout scripture. Uh, normal people like us, Lord, who uh, you, you recorded their lives as an example for us to know 
uh, we're not doing this alone and to teach us. Holy Spirit, I pray you'd help me as I teach your word and uh, help me to, uh, to teach it well and help us to understand and be changed by it. And might you use it to make us more like Christ. Father, thanks for Jesus. We pray all this through him. It's his name we pray. Amen. If you got your Bible, you can turn with me, Acts chapter 18. And we've been working our way through the New Testament book of Acts over the last like year and a half now. And Acts tells the story of how the church got started. Like it's, it covers about 30 years after Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. And so there's good stuff in here for us as a church to see how, how did the church live in light of that? What did it mean to be a Christian? And, and what happened? How did all of this get going after Jesus' ascension? Well, we're in Acts chapter 18, and we're gonna pick it up in verse 18. Uh, so if you got your Bible, you can look with me there. Acts chapter 18, verse 18, it starts like this. After this, now if we're good students of scripture, good at studying God's word, and you know, we had taken a couple weeks break to look at a letter Paul wrote to a church in the city that he's in, in, in Corinth, a couple letters, and now we're back. And so we got to look at this. After this, what, what's the logical question that comes to mind if we're just starting out right here? After what? After what? Well, how do we find that out? Well, just scroll up or turn back a little bit in your Bible up to verse nine. And it's after this. Paul was in Corinth, in the city of Corinth in Greece. He had started a church. He had been kind of on the run when he got there from uh, starting churches in other places where, where people were after him. He was basically chased out of town uh, with the threat of his life. And that's how he eventually ends up in Corinth. And in Corinth, in the verses prior to this, he was preaching and teaching God's word and there was another, uh, a little bit of a rebellion against him where people were not happy with him. And so the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Jesus appeared to him, the text might be read in your copy of God's word, uh, don't be afraid, but go on speaking. Don't be silent. Uh, uh, implying that maybe Paul was a little bit afraid, thinking, oh boy, here we go again. Jesus tells him, don't be afraid, for I'm with you. No one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he, Paul, stayed a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. So there's our first uh, after this, right? It was after about a year and a half when we get to verse 18. But there's more, so let's keep reading. In, in verse 12, but when Galileo was proconsul of Achaia, Achaia the, basically like the governor of that region, uh, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal. Remember, Jesus had promised he wouldn't be attacked in a way that would hurt him. Uh, and they said this, this man, Paul, he's persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Galileo said to the Jews, if, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it's a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge about these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. Remember, Jesus promised no one would attack him to harm him. And he kept his promise. And so the after this, in Acts 18, verse 18, was after Jesus made a promise to Saul, and after Paul was dragged before the proconsul of Achaia, Galileo, and, and after Jesus kept his promise, 
That's when we're picking up the story this morning. But you know, it's not only after those things, it was after so much else that Paul had been through. Uh, Paul's example shows us that while life is often hard and full, it is often hard and full of difficult circumstances. It is, isn't it? We saw that last Sunday, if you were here last weekend. We looked at uh, Paul's, uh, one of Paul's letters to the church back in Corinth, and, and he described some of the things that had happened to him. And we saw from Paul's life, as if we needed the Bible to tell us, that life is often hard. <laughs> You're like, I didn't need to read the Bible to tell you that, Josh. I could have I, I told you that for free. Like, life is often hard, isn't it? It really is. And in that letter, we saw Paul lay out so many of his hardships, which we're not gonna take the time to rehash again this morning, but I wanna draw your attention just to one. And if you missed last Sunday, I encourage you to go back on the website and check out the message from last week, or you can look up some of those verses in your handout. But Paul writes this to the church in Corinth. He says, we don't want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. We were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. The Apostle Paul, one of the greatest followers of Jesus to ever live, at least I'd put him on that list, despaired of life itself. It was so hard. That's a rough spot, isn't it? I mean, life was hard for Paul. And we could go on to say so much more, but I'll let you look at that yourself. But the fact is that the, uh, life being hard isn't limited to Paul. And it shows up all over in the Bible. The psalmist writes this in Psalm 90. The years of our life are 70. Yeah, most people lived about 70. Some even to about 80, he says, even by reason of strength, 80. But look what he says. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They're soon gone and we all fly away. I love that God's word is clear and honest about life. Don't you? It tells me I can trust it. It doesn't paint a rosy picture that's not true. It speaks to the realities of life that, yeah, if, uh, most of life, while there's a lot of good things in life, if we're honest, there's a lot of life that's really, really hard. In fact, uh, the great theologian, John Wayne, uh, once said this. Actually, we don't know if John Wayne said this, but he's credited with this statement. He said this, he said, life is hard. It's even harder when you're stupid. <laughs> when you make dumb choices. When uh, you don't live a life with wisdom. And wouldn't you know it, uh, Psalm 90 kind of goes on to say the same thing. Who considers the power of your anger, Lord, and your wrath according to the fear of you? So help us not be stupid, not be foolish, but teach us to number our days that we might get a heart of wisdom. Because life is full of trouble and hardship, so help us be wise. And again, I just, I love that the Bible's true about these things, and it reveals both, you know, the cause of our difficulties, and it reveals the solution to our difficulties. And ultimately, in terms of the cause, we realize that our difficulties, again, I'm kind of reviewing where we were last weekend, it, it's our fault, not God's. Because a lot of times when we face really hard things, we might be tempted to want to blame God. I, in fact, I would say there's a pretty good 
chance that most of us in this room have done that at some point in time in our lives. But the reality is, it's not God's fault, it's ours. We did it, not God. See, his way is perfect. To look at another Psalm, Psalm 18, this God, his way is perfect. And his word, it proves true. He's a shield for all those who take refuge in him. It's not his fault, he's perfect, it's ours. Romans three, Paul writes this to the church in Rome, everyone has sinned, we've all sinned. We all fall short of the glory of God. We all fall short of his perfection. We do. You know, it started um, with, in the garden with Adam in Genesis three, and it, it spread from there to everyone. All the hardships and evils of life find their origin in our sinfulness and in our sin. Uh, Romans five, therefore just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all because all sinned. We've all sinned, we all fall short. Now hear me, hear me very clearly in this. I'm not saying that every hardship and every difficulty of life and every piece of suffering is a one-to-one cause and effect relationship between your sin and whatever you're going through. I'm not saying that. And the Bible wouldn't say that either, right? What I am saying though is that all hardship finds its origin ultimately in our sinfulness. That God designed everything good, but we stepped outside of that design and now we live in a world of brokenness. But God, by his good design, has offered to fix it through Christ. And if we would repent and believe and turn back to him, we can be restored to his good design, right? But it does find its origin in, in our sin. It's not God's fault, it's, it's ours. All have sinned. Think of the best person you know. You'd say, oh, they're, they're pretty good but they're not perfect, (laughs) they're not perfect because everyone has sinned. And Genesis three makes it clear that the world is broken because of sin. But there's good news too, that while all have sinned, the very next verse, we're all justified by his grace as a gift. See, uh, not only does God provide a solution to our circumstances and one day he's gonna fix it all in Christ, He provides a fix, more importantly, for us, for our own hearts and our own lives. See, God is perfect, and so his standard is perfection, but the good news is, while nobody's perfect, perfect is a gift. We're justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. And, And Paul's example shows us that while life is often hard and full of difficult circumstances, by the way, many of which we can't control. Have you noticed that? That a lot of the difficulties we face in our lives, we, we just don't have control over. There's some we do, some we do stupid things and get stupid prizes, right? But uh, many of our difficulties are, are things that are way beyond our control. You know, uh, the second wisest man to ever live besides Jesus, Solomon, said this in Ecclesiastes chapter seven. He saw the same thing. He says this, chapter seven, verse 13, accept the way 
God does things. Accept it. For who can straighten what he has made crooked? Verse 14, enjoy prosperity while you can. But when hard times strike, realize that both come from God. Remember, nothing is certain in this life. Accept the way God does things, he says. So that begs the question for me, how does God do things? From to accept the way God does things, how does he do things? And how do I make sense of the fact that there is a lot of difficulty and brokenness in this world? And if Solomon's saying here, both come from the hand of God, doesn't that contradict exactly what you just said, Josh? Well, I, I tend to think of it like this, and maybe this will be helpful for you. To think of God as having, in his will, kind of two hands to his will. On the one side is the, his active hand of his will, and on the other side is his passive hand of his will. I mean, we're the ones who messed it up. Everything is broken, and we live in a world that's full of brokenness until Jesus fixes it all. But uh, God's will kind of presents itself, I think, in, in two ways to us in our experience. First, his active hand. This is his, uh, you might call it, let's talk about this, his efficacious or causal hand. Like, he causes these things to happen. He causes things to work out in the end for his purposes, doesn't he? He, he causes good for his children. He, he, he caused our salvation by sending Jesus to live a perfect life, die on the cross in our place, rise from the grave so that we could have his life. There's certain things he causes, right? That's his active hand. Ephesians talks about this, chapter one, verse 11. We've obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him, according to his purpose, who works all things according to the counsel of his will. His active hand is at work. Uh, but there's also a sense in which uh, God also has, you might think of it as a passive hand in his will. Uh, God's passive hand, let's talk about that. Well, that's where rather than his causal hand causing things to happen, his active hand, his passive hand allows things. For instance, uh, we mentioned that all have sinned. Started with Adam, goes on today with us. Do you ever wonder, like, why didn't God just, like, stop Adam and Eve from eating from the tree? Where was his active hand in that moment? Like, why didn't he just stop them? Well, I, I think in part because if, if he had just stopped them, then their love for him uh, couldn't have been just a choice from their will to truly, freely love him for who he is, just like he truly, freely loves us no matter who we are. We'd just be robots, right? And, and he'd be a manipulating, conniving God rather than really loving us and allowing us to love him in the same way. And so his passive hand allowed them to sin. Because if they weren't allowed to sin, I just wonder, could they really be able to love? Something for you to chew on. Well, or think about uh, the example of Job where I think we see both God's active hand and his passive hand at work. Are you familiar with Job? 
If you got your Bible, you can turn to Job. You can just turn to the middle of your Bible, and then if you hit the Psalms, turn left. And go to Job chapter one. Let's go check out Job for just a little bit because God has a lot of good things to say about this guy. Uh, It starts off like this in Job chapter one. There once was a man named Job who lived in the land of Uz, which would be uh, in the Persian Gulf, basically. He was blameless. He was a man of complete integrity. In fact, he feared God and he stayed away from evil. So what's that tell you? I'm just gonna set it up here for you. Some bad things are gonna happen to our our friend Job. But was it a one-to-one direct relationship because of his sin? No. But God allows some things in his passive hand to happen to him. Uh, He feared God and he stayed away from evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, a fruitful family. He owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 teams of oxen, 500 female donkeys. He also had many servants. He was, in fact, the richest person in that entire area. Like, wow. Who, Who would be the richest person in the entire area. You know, we might not describe them as having, uh, what, 7,000 sheep and 300 camels, but we might say they have the biggest house on the lake. They've got, you know, all this and that. And that's the idea. And Job was a righteous man. Job's sons, let's keep reading the good things about Job. Job's sons would take turns preparing feasts in their homes. And they would also invite uh, their three sisters to celebrate with them. When these celebrations ended, sometimes after several days, Job would purify his children. He would get up early in the morning and offer a burnt offering for each of them. For Job said to himself, "Uh, perhaps my children have sinned and they've cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular practice. Not only is he said to be a good guy who doesn't sin, who's incredibly wealthy, but it sounds like he's the kind of guy you'd want leading your family too, right? Like Job was a good dad (laughs) and a good husband and he loved his family well spiritually. It was his regular practice. Well, you get to verse six and we read that one day the members of the heavenly court came to present themselves before the Lord and the accuser, Satan, came with them. Where have you come from? The Lord asked Satan. Satan answered the Lord, I've I've been patrolling the earth, watching everything that's going on. Then the Lord asked Satan, "Have, have you noticed my servant Job? You've seen him, haven't you? Uh, He's the finest man in all the earth. He's blameless. He's a man of complete integrity, God says. He he fears me. He he stays away from evil. Satan replies to the Lord, well, yeah, but Job has good reason to fear you, God. I mean, you've always put a wall of protection around him and his home, all his property. I mean, (laughs) you've made him prosper in everything he does. Why wouldn't he love you? Look how rich he is. But if you reach out, take your hand, and take away everything he has, he'll surely curse you to his face, to your face. All right, the Lord says, well, you may test him. Do whatever you want with everything he possesses. Which hand of God is that? Active or passive? passive. Satan, go ahead, take and do with it, do with him whatever you want, with everything he possesses. But don't harm him physically. 
So Satan left the Lord's presence. Verse 13, uh, one day when Job's sons and daughters were feasting at the oldest brother's house, a messenger arrived at Job's home with this news. Probably out of breath. Your, your oxen were plowing with the donkeys feeding beside them. When the Sabaeans raided us, they stole all the animals, they killed all the farmhands. I'm the only one who escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger arrived with this news. The fire of God has fallen from heaven and burned up your sheep and all the shepherds. I'm the only one who's escaped to tell you, Job. Surely panting out of breath, right? Man, this is some bad news for Job. But while he was still speaking, another messenger arrived with this news. Verse 16, the fire of God has fallen from heaven and Oh, I already read that. Verse 17, while he was still speaking, a third messenger arrived with this news. Three bands of Chaldean raiders have stolen your camels and killed all your servants, and I'm the only one who's escaped to tell you. I wonder if Job had to sit down at that point. (laughs) Verse 18, while he was still speaking, another messenger arrived with this news. Your sons and daughters were feasting, Job, in their oldest brother's home. Suddenly a powerful wind swept in from the wilderness and hit the house on all sides. The house collapsed. All your children are dead. I'm sorry, I'm the only one who's escaped to tell you. Some of you, some of us, we faced some days like Job. Had the bad news come, things we didn't choose, things that for whatever reason in God's plan he allowed to happen. What do you do in those moments? Be easy to curse God, wouldn't it? Be angry. Look at what Job does, verse 20. Job stood up, he tore his robe in grief. The normal guy is grieving. And then he shaved his head. He fell to the ground to worship. He said, I, I came naked from my mother's womb. I'll be naked when I leave. The Lord gave me what I had. The Lord's taken it away. So I'm guessing he didn't like just sing this one at the top of his lungs. <laughs> and he says, uh, praise the name of the Lord. Maybe it was through tears. But in all this, verse 22, chapter one, Job did not sin by blaming God. Job had that good understanding of God's will, his, his active hand and his passive hand. Well, the story goes on into chapter two and Satan comes back and says, oh, okay, yeah, okay, yeah, but if you would, let, you know, if you'd allow something to happen to him physically, that would surely turn the tide, right? I mean, and so God says to him, all right, verse six, chapter two, do with him as you please, but spare his life. His passive hand, I'm gonna allow this to happen. His active hand, you can only go so far. So Satan left the Lord's presence and he struck Job with terrible boils from head to foot, 
Job scraped his skin with a piece of broken pottery as he sat among the ashes. His wife turns, she says, are you still trying to maintain your integrity? You should curse God and die. What's the point? But Job replied, verse 10, you talk like a foolish woman. Should we accept only good things from the hand of God? Should we only be okay with his active hand, but never accept bad things, never trust him in his passive hand? That's what Job says to her. And in all this, Job said nothing wrong. Pretty powerful. And you can read through the rest of Job, and and Job gets to some pretty dark places himself. And and God even has to kind of get a little harsh with Job to wake him up out of his, uh, his stinking thinking. But one of the things we see about Job is that even in, while life is incredibly difficult and we have difficult circumstances, many of which that are totally outside of our control, because these were outside of Job's control. He was a blameless man, he didn't sin, he didn't cause any of these things to happen. One of the things we do have agency over and that we can control, we can choose our attitude in the midst of those circumstances. We can choose our attitude. Now we may not want to choose our attitude, at least I don't always, <laughs> but we can. Uh, which kind of begs the question, okay, so what do we mean by attitude? Well, I like this definition. It comes from a book called uh, Lord Change My Attitude Before It's Too Late by James McDonald. Um, and he defines attitude this way. It says attitude is uh, a pattern of thinking developed over a long period of time. So it's a pattern I keep thinking this way, work on repeat, and it's developed, that attitude is over a long period of time. Uh, Now some of you, you're thinking, uh, we're gonna be here a long period of time, aren't we Josh? Because you started in Acts chapter 18 and we got through two words and then you went down this rabbit trail on this whole attitude thing and mine's not very good right now. When are we gonna get... Well, good news for you. Let's go back to Acts chapter 18, shall we? Acts chapter 18, after this, remember Paul was in Corinth and all these things that happened. And I mentioned something that happens in our text today reveals an underlying attitude in Paul's life, a pattern of thinking developed over a long period of time. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then he took leave of the brothers and he set sail for Syria, and with him, Priscilla and Aquila. I'll show you this on a map in just a second. At Sencre, he'd cut his hair, for he was under a vow. Now that might seem like a weird passing comment, like Paul just stopped at Great Clips on his way out of town, like what's going on? It's, it's an important line here, we're gonna come back to it. Verse 19, uh, and they came to Ephesus, and he left them, Priscilla and Aquila there. He'd met Priscilla and Aquila, in Corinth, they were tent makers, leather workers like Paul. And when they get to Ephesus, he leaves them there. But uh, So they split up. Ephesus was a big city. Paul himself went into the synagogue. He reasoned with the Jews. And when they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I'll return to you if God wills, if God allows me to come back, if God causes me to come back, whatever his will. And, and Paul set sail from Ephesus. 
So let me show you on a map here what we're looking at. Paul had been in Corinth. That's modern day Greece. That's Italy up in the corner. Real places. Sencre was the port of Corinth on the south side of that isthmus. And he hops in a ship. He sails uh, to Ephesus after he cuts his hair in Sencre. And then he leaves Priscilla and Aquila here. And then he takes off and he sails. We're going to see he eventually goes to Caesarea and then eventually makes his way up to Syria to the church in Antioch that had sent him out originally. He's finishing up his second journey. Well, when he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. When it says he went up, I think what's happening there is Paul went up to Jerusalem. When you read up in the Bible, it's always up in elevation. And Jerusalem is always up. I mean, it wouldn't make sense if he went up to see the church in Caesarea and then from Caesarea, which is a seaport on the Mediterranean Sea, to go down from there to another city of Antioch. So I think he went up to Jerusalem, saw the church, and then went down to Antioch. And after spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening the disciples. Now, uh, I want to take your attention back. That was kind of the end of his second journey, but I want to take your attention back to this comment. At Sencre, he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. It seems like a passing comment, just kind of weird, but I would say to you, I think this reveals a little bit of Paul's attitude in his life and ministry. What's probably happening here is Paul has taken uh, some type of Nazarite vow in which he wouldn't cut his hair in response uh, to a, a promise of God and then would cut it in thanksgiving to God for him keeping his promise. Can you think of a promise made to Paul? We only have to go back up to verse nine. The Lord said to Paul one night in a vision while he was in Corinth, don't be afraid, keep speaking, don't be silent, I am with you. No one will attack you to harm you for I have many in this city who are my people. Most scholars, and I would agree with them, think that Paul then, in response to Jesus' promise, made a vow not to cut his hair uh, because it made him more spiritual? No, because it was just a physical reminder to him of Jesus' promise to him to be with him in every circumstance, to cover him with his protection, And then when that promise was kept, as Paul's leaving town at the ports of uh, Sencre, on the south side of Corinth, what's he do? He cuts his hair. And why would he do that? As an act of thankfulness to Jesus for keeping his promise to him. Now normally those vows uh, couldn't be fulfilled completely until in Jerusalem for the Jewish people. And so I think that's also why Paul is in such a hurry to get to Jerusalem. He doesn't want to stay in Ephesus. He's like, no, I got things to do. Probably would have taken his hair back as a burnt offering in Jerusalem as thankfulness to God. Thankfulness to Jesus for keeping his promise. And we just see in Paul, I think then, this attitude consistently, even in the hardest of hard things, an attitude of thankfulness to God. And you know, all of us, as we wrap up here, let's uh, just challenge you with this. We, we kind of have two choices as it relates to our obedience to the Lord. And it shows up in the Old Testament. 
it still applies to us today, first is uh, I can choose to sin, and when I choose to sin, I'm choosing to suffer. Uh, You know, that's what the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20 are all about. If you do this, (laughs) expect this. So don't do this. Don't touch the hot stove because you will be burned. If you choose to touch the hot stove, you're choosing to suffer. You see? Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 28, uh, God says, if you're not careful to do all the words of this law that are written in this book, that you may fear this glorious and awesome name, the Lord your God, if, if you don't do it, but you choose not to, you choose to sin, then the Lord will bring on you and your offspring extraordinary afflictions, severe and lasting. If you choose to sin, you're choosing to suffer. Well, let's look at one example of that. In dealing with, uh, with his people in the wilderness in the Old Testament, uh, we could see an example of choosing to sin and choosing suffering in a complaining attitude. What's an attitude? A pattern of thinking developed over a long period of time, right? Now, is it wrong and sinful to complain? Not necessarily, not necessarily. But if it becomes a pattern of thinking and becomes an attitude, then you might want to examine it a little bit. Because in Numbers chapter 11, God's people, uh, he had brought them out of Egypt. He's taking them to the land he had promised to give them. And uh, they're getting ready uh, to head in. And the people, we read in chapter 11, complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. Uh, In the text it says they grumbled against him. So it wasn't just, oh man, this is a hard day, God. It was a, (laughs) it's always hard. When are you gonna fix it? Why is it always hard? Why do you allow this to, you know, and just like murmuring, even the word in Hebrew, it just sounds like in English, murmur. It's just this constant groaning and grumbling against God. They complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes, and when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled. And the fire of the Lord burned among them, consumed some of the outlying parts of the camp. Uh, you can read the rest of the story in Numbers 11, but their complaining attitude, they're, they're choosing that lifestyle of complaining, ends up leading to that generation spending a lifetime in the wilderness, wandering for 40 years in the wilderness and never making it into the promised land. Now, on the flip side, so how do you get rid of a complaining attitude? Well, you've, you've got to replace it. The old is gone, the new has come. You've got to replace the old, kill the old, kill the sin, and replace it with something new. So how do you deal with a complaining attitude? Well, here's the second choice. Choose the sin, choose the suffer. You can choose to obey and choose blessing. Choose to obey, you choose God's blessing. At Deuteronomy 28, the Lord says, if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments, uh, Moses is speaking to them that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above the nations of the earth. All these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the Lord your God. So ultimately throughout my life, I'm, I'm, I'm left with some choices. If I choose to sin, I'm, I'm choosing 
to suffer. If I choose to just develop this attitude of complaint and critical, just grumbling, I'm choosing to suffer. But if I choose to obey God, I choose blessing. So what's the obedience part in this? Well, do you know one of the most common commands of Paul in particular in the New Testament is to be thankful? It's kind of fitting, Thanksgiving weekend, to replace your complaining attitude with a thankful one. You know, um, you might say, okay, Josh, but that's all, I mean, that choose to sin, choose to suffer, choose to obey, choose blessing, that's Old Testament stuff, isn't it? I mean, does that really apply now? Well, I'm glad you asked, because Paul says this uh, to, the, to the church in Corinth, by the way. He says, these things, referring to those things that I was reading about, happened to them, the Israelites in the wilderness, as an example. And they were written down for our instruction. So yeah, it applies to me today. Well, uh, so in terms of how to be thankful, let's look at Psalm 100, which declares itself a psalm for giving thanks. Here's some ways you could be thankful this week. Uh, if, If you've got a complaining attitude, and by the way, I can have a complaining attitude at times, right? Like, so this is a battle in my own spirit too. How do I replace that? Well, Psalm 100 gives us some good, good tips. Uh, make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord. You, you could serve him, get involved and serve and put others in front of yourself. It helps you take your eyes off the things you're complaining about. Come into his presence with singing. You're like, I don't sing, Josh. I'm not a good singer. That's okay. Refer back to verse one, which says, just make a joyful noise to the Lord. It doesn't have to be pretty. It just has to be from your heart. Right? Uh, Know that the Lord, he is God. It's he who made us and we're his. We're his people. We're the sheep of his pasture. And his active hand is at work, but his passive hand as well, ultimately because he's working all things for the good of those who love him. So enter his gates with thanksgiving, his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. And his faithfulness to all generations. Have a thankful attitude. As we wrap up, kids, I told you I had something for you, didn't I? Do you remember that? Some of you noticed the box of Krispy Kremes up here. Anybody? I bet my son did. Charlie, did you see him? He's hanging out down there. I got some uh, Krispy Kremes here today. And uh, kids, by the way, when you leave today, there's some donuts for you at the coffee bar. Adults, they're $10 for you. Kids, they're free. <laughs> they're little donuts, though. They're little ones. So adults, you can grab some, too. But you know, you ever get a donut? I like, I like Krispy Kremes. I like a, maybe like a glazed one. Glazed donuts are pretty good, aren't they? Heat them up in the microwave. Fantastic. Uh, they even have ones, you know, with like chocolate frosting on them. That's pretty good. Maybe you really like the ones with sprinkles. Anybody a sprinkle person? Yeah, I see some of you guys. I see some of the kids. Uh, or you can get like a, a cake donut, just a plain one. But what if, um, 
what if you gave me a donut and I got it from you and instead of saying thanks, all I said was, where's the rest of it? There's a hole in the middle. You're like, yeah, I know it's a donut. Yeah, but I want the whole thing. Like, why isn't it all there? What attitude am I displaying? Complaining. But a thankful attitude says, no, my goal is to see the donut, not the hole. Right? To see the donut, not the hole. And that's maybe what you need to make your goal this week too. Make it your goal, see the donut, not the hole. Amen? Let me pray, we'll sing, and you can go get a donut. (laughs) Father, thanks for Jesus.